Yeah, I, I feel like the younger audiences will adapt to it easier. I remember one lesson was quizzing these kids on all of these film scores. And the one that all of the kids knew right away was Raiders of the Lost Ark. When I talk about that on the air, I notice people kind of like, oh, yeah, now I actually do like Dvorak. Well, actually, I really do like Chopin now that you mentioned that. Hi, and welcome to And If Love Remains. I'm your host, Mike Levitt, along with my co-host, our first uh, uh, co-hosting duties of the year, Dr. Elias Axel Pedersen. Elias, welcome back. Hey, Mike. Glad to have you today, man. I'm excited. It is very exciting. It is exciting. We have a wonderful guest today. Uh, We have Melissa Green on. Uh, she's actually with uh, KBAQ, KBOC here in Phoenix, which is the, the major classical station here in the, in the Phoenix metro area. Um, Melissa got her start in radio while studying music education and classical guitar at the University of, of Omaha, Nebraska. Woohoo. And, <laughs> uh, and she, uh, just for those who don't know, which is everybody, uh, my wife went to the University of Omaha, Nebraska, so we got to, you know, go, you know, Go, go for those uh, UNO grads. Um, yeah. She began hosting in her hometown of Omaha as an intern and eventually worked her way up to music director and afternoon host. Uh, most recently, Melissa worked for American Public Media as a national host and as producer of a podcast for kids. Um, I love it. She says her first musical loves were Julie Andrews and Paul Simon, two of, my gr- two of the great performing artists of our of the 20th century and uh, very excited to have Melissa on to talk more about uh, radio, classical music and radio, all kinds of fun stuff. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So first a little bit, I love origin stories. So I'm really curious about yours, how um, how you got into radio and, and how this kind of journey has, has taken you to where you are now. So why don't you kind of uh, take us through that a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. It really started in college with an internship, which you may or may not have read. I was getting my degree in music education and I kind of had these loose parameters of wanting to have a career in music. I wanted it to be educational, creative. I kind of wanted to be in charge of what I was doing. And I kind of always kept like, because my certification was K through 12 And I wound up like loving teaching elementary music. I loved creating my own lessons. But when I applied for this internship in college, they, uh, the classical radio station in Omaha looks for people studying classical music. So when they, if, when they get on the air, they know what they're talking about, or at least, you know, the, the basics of the Baroque classical remote uh, romantic eras. So I did that towards the end of my sophomore year. And for the next couple of years, I just kind of became after my internship, I think it only lasted like three months. And then I just kind of started hosting Saturday afternoons at the after the Metropolitan Opera. And, you know, in radio, you always start at the bottom. I think majority of people that I talk to start as an intern working for free. And so, yeah, I did evening. Uh, I'm sorry. Saturday afternoons, overnights, and then worked my way up eventually. And yeah. that's kind of how I made my way. Every everyone's journey to radio is different. Yeah. And 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 the afternoon host, that's like, you know, the afternoon host and the the morning host. Those are like the big dogs, right? Yeah, totally. I was I was thrilled. And it kind of worked with my schedule when I was music director because I was planning our playlists. I did a lot of like interviews for our art show in the morning and um, yeah, just kind of got to jump in every weekday from one to four. That's when a lot of like, you know, families pick up their kids from school. And so eventually when I started working with kids in the community, they would hear me and recognize me and think of me as a friend. And that was cool. Yeah, that was a really, uh, really rewarding experience. Wow. I was going to ask if I can follow up on, you know, just the difficulties of the job itself. I I think we uh, had a little bit of communication before today 
And I asked some students as well to uh, share some input and questions. So maybe yeah. I can go with a, a sort of, uh, I guess, straightforward one at, at first. Uh, is the job hard? <laughs> of course, but, <laughs> but how so? And what are some of the challenges that you have as a radio show host? Yeah, I mean, going live for the very first time. In fact, someone just asked me this question because I was getting interviewed by an old high school teacher about my career path. And it's kind of like you you just have to do it. You have to get out there and perform and experience everything. So that part of it was nerve wracking and, and challenging. But the job itself is creative and fun. And, and radio is not supposed to be a stressful job. Of course, there are moments there are there are deadlines when you're going live and you have other people on the air with you. But it's just it's creative and it's meant to be fun. So there are challenges. I wouldn't say it's hard. How would you compare? I mean, as a musician, how would you compare it to, you know, performing live or, um, you know, having something prepared to perform versus, you know, uh, being in front of a microphone? Yeah, well, if you mess up, you just have to keep on going. <laughs> it just like I remember I was playing um, the second movement to box cello suite on classical guitar in front of a live audience. And I was like repeating the B section again for the second time. And if you've played Bach, I feel like it's like the most mentally challenging thing. And I just kind of lost my spot. And of course, a second or two of pausing feels like forever. That's like the same thing it is on the radio. And you just have to like pretend it didn't happen and keep going because it's it's like, you know, that forward motion. You just keep moving forward. Yeah, it is tough. Right. It's uh, the, the nerves, certainly in performance. And like you say, it feels like an eternity. We've actually had <laughs> other guests on talking about stage anxiety and, and performance anxiety. And uh, mm -hmm. the the perspective we have of time that changes so much. Yes. Um, and then people say, oh, yeah, I was, it was like a half a second. I didn't hear anything. And yeah. no, I was I was missing words. I was <laughs> missing notes, whatever. Right. You're like, yeah. no, that was a clear mess up. <laughs> yeah. They're like, we didn't know. I was like, OK, well. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's totally. That's, well, how long have you been with KBOC? Um, I actually started October 4th of wow, 2021. So it feels like it's been longer, but it, it hasn't really been that long. Wow. And so and so you made that move, over, you know, through the pandemic. I mean, there's there's been a lot. It's been a crazy time for a lot of people. Um, yeah. How is how has that been? How's that worked out for you? Are you it seems like it's a it's a good spot so far. Yeah, it worked out way better. Like during the pandemic, we're working for American public media like it's kind of like in radio, you have freedom. But when you're an on air host, you you know, it's like when you're not on air, you can organize your time however you want. But um, we lost an employee during the pandemic. So I got switched to working overnights. So like I had been in the Twin Cities for about nine months before the pandemic hit. So I was just kind of getting used to like my job in the city and I felt comfortable then everything shut down. So it was super isolating. And then on top of it, I had to start working 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. and like getting no sunlight. And it was just kind of a rough time. I felt like I got really like off balance and I wasn't in my flow. I think my job and being creative and, and still like playing music and writing in my free time helped for sure. But I kind of needed a position where I felt like I'm a little more valued and I'm doing something that it just didn't feel very valued at my previous yeah. job. So I just kind of threw some things out there. I actually got some offers and I just kind of turned things down until I found something that felt right. And it being the morning show here in Phoenix was like huge. So I was really excited that this aligned and I definitely wanted to live somewhere warm where there was mostly <laughs> sunshine. That was, yeah, I've kind of felt like I did a 180 since mm -hmm. I moved down here. Yeah, I moved from a cold spot before, and it's uh, quite different. I do miss some snow, but I, I also like yeah. this, uh, like January, February time. It's really beautiful. Yeah, it really is. I, I was going to say the hours that you had, the 10 to 6 a.m., that's more my my style. <laughs> but, oh, uh, is it? Yeah. Um, well, see, some people can do it, and some people in radio have, have done it for 15 years out of their career. And 
I had just, I mean, I'm such a morning person. I love getting up at 5 a.m. And I love being creative then. I like to come into my little home studio and work on whatever. And yeah, it just was, I was like physically ill. And they were like, my boss was telling me, I never got actually caught COVID. I Again, I was very good about going in for my live shift. Obviously, no one else is there during the overnights. But um, yeah. they kept telling me that being being physically ill was related to stress of COVID. And I was like, well, it's, it's stress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. You and Mike are the early person. I, I've and now I, I teach full time. And so I'm getting up er, for me early, probably very late for you. But uh, it's quite a shift um, in that. So well, I, is, I is the, like is the, the classic musician who, 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 you know, likes to wake up at 11 and, and go to bed at three after this, after a show. So, yeah, you know. no, I, yeah, that's actually how my boss is here at KBOC. He'll be up till two or three in the morning. Cause I think he's, he's also a published writer and he cannot do mornings. So like, that's also nice that I have the ability to get up and start work at 5 a.m., and kind of have the place to by, yourself. And, yeah. And then he's like, if I email you at 10 o'clock at night, just just ignore it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's nice. So, now I get to hear you on the radio in the morning on my drive to the, to work. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so you do you do. That's some how I started mornings. to also put the name with the voice and all that. Uh, mm, when you, I mean, yeah. it's only been a few months, but uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, people had to adjust. Yeah. So you mentioned... Um, uh, you were the program director. Um, what's a, what's the role of a program director versus a host? Like what decisions do you get to make and as a host and, and vice versa when it comes to the, the programs that's actually being played or the, or the um, I don't know, the different spots that you do and, and such. Yeah. So like when I was um, I, we did have a program director. They kind of choose. So music director is a little bit different, but most stations have a music director that's basically planning out the playlist. I was choosing the music basically from midnight until 4 p.m. when we had our syndicated shows come on, whether it be the New York Philharmonic, uh, symphony cast, etc. So I was picking all of the pieces that would be on our playlist and the program director's job is to kind of figure out um, what kind of contracts are we going to have with the Omaha symphony? When are their spots going to air? Does someone want to pay more money to air their spot at, you know, seven 30 in the morning when there's going to be, you know, everybody listening on their way to work when they're getting ready. So the program director is really deciding like where everything fits and they usually host um, a special to whereas music director is normally not on the air because it's a full-time job. But I worked for in Omaha, like our radio station had like seven full-time people. So I wore so I, I wore so many hats, which actually was really good for my first job out of college. Like I loved it. And then I kind of got to narrow it down to being like, okay, I want to work on my personality as a radio host and yeah. producing, which is why after a few years I, I moved on. So I have a, a question that's <clears throat> maybe multi-layered, but when you are choosing programs or pieces uh, for a classical radio station, um, how would that differ? I mean, that, you have such a, a huge, vast you know repertoire to choose from, uh, so mm -hmm. many instruments and whatnot. So how does that differ from, say, uh, a top 40 or a pop or a country station? And, um, and are you all, also, I want to get into the sort of the... Um, the protections and the copyrights too, because I know a lot of music is copywritten and, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you're not allowed to play certain things, but uh, how do you make those choices? Is it much harder? Is it much easier? Um, do you like the flexibility compared to say a, a pop station? I mean, I don't know. And I don't know if you have friends in the, in those uh, worlds and those stations. Yeah. I mean, basically kind of piggybacking on your last question, like the music director nowadays, picks the music and the hosts have to adapt and plan their show around the playlist that they get. Depending on, you know, um, American public media was huge. So we weren't, the hosts weren't really allowed to change and make edits to where at my previous job, if my boss was like, I didn't really want to play this piece at 10 a.m. I picked this Max Brook violin concerto or whatever. 
I'd be like, okay, great. So um, what makes it easier for me is, so like, yeah, there's a top 40 in classical. We say we kind of have like a top 300 where you have your main Beethoven pieces, your main, um, you know, those symphonic movements that people are really familiar with, whether it be um, Rachmaninoff or Beethoven. And then you have your overtures. You have your Mozart piano pieces. You have your Haydn string quartets. And then when you're planning out at least what I like to focus on is having something from every era. I love like Praetorius dances. I love Renaissance music, a Baroque piece, uh, follow that with, um, you know, maybe something with heavy strings and then do a solo piano or a solo guitar piece. So you're kind of hitting each main era of like Baroque, classical, romantic, some impressionist music sprinkled in here and there. And hopefully some 20th century music. I always liked playing a film piece or two. Uh, believe it or not, or you won't be surprised that, you know, many people are against film music and get they're against hearing like, why are you just playing this finale from Brahms symphony number one or number four. Like, why would you play just a piece of it? Mm. So you kind of, yeah, you kind of have like, here's your a section of all the Mozart's piano sonata number 16. Like you have your A's and then your B's. So there are several like layers to the way you can look at it. And then you plan on like usually six pieces an hour and a total of like basically 50 minutes of music, 10 minutes of talking. And I think that, and I yeah. think that's a unique, a, a kind of a unique problem slash opportunity, I guess that, that, that this classical stations have is, is, you know, when you have a top 40 or a, or a, a pop or a country, like you can be very genre specific. You can just like, you can nail in and go, we're going to do the biggest hits of the nineties, you know, where, <laughs> you know, K-Bach, I think they're, they're at some, at one point it was, you know, the greatest hits of the last 300 years. And, yeah. you know, you can't, um, you can't focus in necessarily on like the romantic or, or, or even 20th century music and say, okay, well, let's, let's, let's take a, a delve into, you know, some modern composers and maybe get a taste for it. That it's gotta be really a difficult balance to find when you have so much, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's so diverse. Yeah, it really is. And you don't want to have, you have to make sure if you're going to play a Jean-Francais piece that has oboe, that you're not following it up with an oboe concerto. And if you're not familiar, like, with a piece and you're programming the music, like it seems simple, but like, listen to it. Cause you know, I've made that mistake where I'll play like three flute pieces, like back to back to back. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe <laughs> I did that. But that's not, you know, it doesn't make for the best radio. If you mm -hmm. do that. <laughs> where Is there a lot of discussion between the host and the programmer to uh, kind of figure things out, or it's just, you get that playlist uh, and that's given out that, that whole day to uh, all the hosts you have to work with it yeah there's not a lot of discussion unless um you know there's some sort of celebration or you know something revolving around what's happening in the community i always try to find some sort of connection um kind of it you know if it's a Dvorak piece and he, you know, kind of wrote music and serenades based off of the sounds he heard when he was sailing and he loved those boat calls, those horn sounds. So if you can find one piece an hour and then either work backwards or forwards off of that kind of idea or theme, that's mm. the best way to do it. Mm. That's pretty cool. Um, I, I also was going to say, you mentioned trying to make uh, an eclectic program or something that was more diverse and choosing from different eras as well. Um, yeah. In the classical performance world, I don't know if it echoes the same in radio, but I find it's very hard uh, as a performer to program uh, music. You know, you, there are certain composers, as I'm a pianist, so you can do an old all Chopin program and it kind of is successful. But it's hard mm -hmm. to do with that with a lot of composers. And I like to get something from, like you say, Baroque, you know, uh, romantic, classical, uh, maybe even contemporary. But what I've mm -hmm. found is that it's sometimes hard to program a contemporary piece. You know, any, and I'm, I'm saying anything after 1950. Uh, some people don't even want it after 
1920s <laughs> with uh, with Debussy and Ravel, um, yeah. because a classical audience is, for the most part, older and mm-hmm. kind of dwindling. And we've dealt with this problem for for many years. So how do we how do we sort of engage more younger folks and also you know music that's been written in the last hundred years or so? How do we combine those and have a solution? Yeah, I I feel like the younger audiences will adapt to it easier than the older audiences. Like I mentioned before, um, there was someone who wrote into KBOC recently and any listener is allowed to send us an email and usually we're all copied on it. And it was like so upset that we played a John Williams piece during like midday, you know, a film piece. But in my experience, when I was teaching like fifth graders, I kind of would... I remember one lesson was quizzing these kids on all of these film scores. And the one that all of the kids knew right away was Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) And this was like back in 2015. And I was so shocked that they knew this like, you know, it's it's a classic now. But so it's kind of like taking those ideas, like I said, and kind of working backwards and maybe bringing in Gustav Holst or other 20th century composers that were just have that like classic sound. Um, I feel like that's what most of like my friends who are casual listeners, that's kind of what they would gravitate towards. Or like another thing, like I've always been obsessed with Lord of the Rings and the score and like a lot of work that Howard Shore did, but it just reminds me so much of Dvorak and all of these other things. So when I talk about that on the air, I notice people kind of like, oh, yeah, now I actually do like Dvorak. Well, actually, I really do like Chopin now that you mentioned that. So it's it's still like a really big challenge, I feel, yeah. like, to, to relate it. And I, I don't have the perfect answer. I don't know if anybody does. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of why, I, I mean, I can't imagine, and not to say that it can't be done or it's not a, an idea, but playing a, a piece by Boulez or Stockhausen, you know, you might get 30 yeah. emails after you played something like that. And that's still a hundred years old, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, Ken David Mazur is uh, conducting and he has like a really, um, a big festival in Chelsea, New York. I haven't, I mean, I interviewed him again. It was like four or five years ago, but Mm -hmm. he was trying to get some of the, his dad was, um, Kurt Mazur, right? Kurt Mazur. And so, yeah, he was just trying to get out these pieces that and some of the issue with radio out like I would go see a performance of 20th century 21st century music and in fact some of like some of his performances that he's recorded and put out over the past five years aren't necessarily for radio Mm -hmm. Um, again like you mentioned Pierre Boulez or some of those composers yeah so I, I, I forget where the question, yeah, it's tough, but I know it, I just think it's still going to take a while. Mm-hmm. So does, is that a, a bottom up or a top down uh, solution? Do you think? Or both Ooh. or neither? I don't know. Oh, that, there's the question. Um. <laughs> yeah. And, and well, no, I that, put pressure that, on you. Well, cause but. that's the thing. I mean, I mean, audiences are, are both um, used to hearing some certain things. They want to hear certain things. Um, and at the same time, like they don't want to be imposed upon by <laughs> other things. I mean, yeah. it's, it, it's a, it is a delicate, I, I remember we had it, a, we had Thomas Rosencrantz on uh, talking about playing some, some new modern piano pieces and, and how he would really try to incorporate those into a show that, that would kind of help people, you know, get into the music more, you know? Yeah, I I kind of what we had at my first station was Friday nights from seven to midnight. It was just called Modern Classics. And anything basically, like you mentioned, after the Impressionist era or stuff that were was composed by WC, you know, in 1901, 1902, we would still include that. But then we'd play a Carl Vine piano piece or uh, Pierre Boulez or something that, you know, maybe you would really like to listen to and expand your mind with on a Friday night. That's kind of the approach. And I still think that a lot of classical radio radio stations need to do that. So, you know, we're kind of looking in forward Um, because if you think about all of these trained musicians that work in 
you know, uh, film score um, production companies or backing up a famous pop star, like all of it, all of it is intertwined. And I just think that people need to realize that it can't stay the same forever. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Carl Vine, and I'm going to take it back to my performance experiences in in programming, um, because of course I want to expand people's minds and ideas. And if I say, "Oh, I'm going to play a contemporary or modern piece," I think a lot of audience, "Oh, I well, I just don't like anything that's modern." It's like, well, yeah. I think you might. So you know, Carl Vine, I've I've actually recorded his first sonata and his second sonata. Mm. Um, no, his third sonata was written for a close friend of mine, uh, Elizabeth oh, Schumann. Wow. And he's a wonderful composer. And for those, you know, Australian, maybe people don't know him, but he's still writing stuff now. And, and the sonata I played is from 1990. And there are some really cool parts that I think if people listen to that, oh, this is this is great. Was this is this Ravel? Is it, you know, um, and I said, no, this was actually written in in our lifetimes. And then people might right. say, oh, oh, I had no idea. It's wonderful music. Um, and so mm -hmm. I think if people give it a little bit of a chance, you know, this is from the bottom up then they'll yes. be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I think um, there is a misconception about what modern music is. You know, yeah, what, well, what, that, what, what it should sound like. Yeah, what, and they're scared of it. When they hear modern, they're thinking of... Like 12-tone stuff. and Yeah. <laughs> right, but, but another um, composer that's been doing really well with modern music is Michael Torkey. He plays with um, Tessa Lark and adds all of these different, you know, folk elements from Amer American music. And I think that's another, um, you know, just underplayed composer on the radio because he's writing this modern music that sounds so beautiful and and it's symphonic and it could, you know, it could sound like film music as well. So, yeah, I think if you take all of those ideas and keep pushing it forward, that could make a little more progress with it it's just people it, yeah well, they'll latch on but but so many people are just like still scared and like i said they hear modern music and they're like ah right well, you've got <laughs> if to you sell listen... tickets at a concert and you've got us you know <laughs> yeah. have listeners that will keep going and it's, it's very it's a tough balance and and if you yeah. listen to somebody that i think is very accessible and really great is somebody like uh, john luther adams and his being series mm. you know yes. being ocean being desert you know those things are so wonderful and they're they're so unique where they you know they do put you in those settings and 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 because it is program music in a in a sense you can you you are you you can go in and understand what your experience is going to be like and and really feel that oh yeah mm -hmm. definitely and you can always learn something new. I think I, one of the last like performances I saw in Omaha was the age of anxiety by oh, Bernstein. Uh, Bernstein. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I couldn't tell the audience's reaction, but like it took me through a whirlwind of emotions. It's and an amazing it, piece. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and hearing it live, you know, having that live experience experience is, is different. And people, if you just go in with an open mind, you'll probably be surprised. Yeah. How, yeah, how but visually your... too, it helps. I think with a lot of more contemporary, you know, the seeing the piano, the soloist there. Um, yes, it's oh, yeah. just Absolutely. so invigorating. You're like, oh my god, what kind of sounds am I experiencing in the hall? It's it's so powerful. Yeah. So, yes. Doesn't always translate to radio, but no, it doesn't. But you know, that's why we try to give away tickets, and right. you know, we we can only <laughs> we we do what we can. Yeah, exactly. Right, because once you see it, then you can recreate it in your mind if you do hear it on radio, and that's that's yeah. a powerful yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. How how has your uh, experience being, you know, both a, a host and a musician? How has that, um, or how has being a host maybe changed your perspective on music as a whole? Hmm, or that's has a it? Really good question. I mean, it's still, I, as my perspective changed when I started studying classical music, mm -hmm. it just kind of taught me things about myself that I don't think I would have learned if I wasn't studying an instrument and reading music and understanding how I interpret this and what things that I miss if there's an accidental and I forget to go back to, you know, a C natural or C sharp or something, <laughs> just wondering, you know, about myself and what are these mistakes I'm making? Why am I making them? So that's kind of why I'll always 
try to educate and put the classical music education stuff out there is because my perspective changed as as a performer. And that's something that I try to carry through in my work as a host. And I'm hoping that people and listeners either relate or or they open themselves up to that experience. You know, you hear so many people being like, I love what I hear on the radio. I don't know what I'm listening to. Mm-hmm, I was right. like, yeah, you do. I mean, you can still paint a picture in your mind and you can still, um, you're still broadening your horizons and you're kind it, you know, it's, it's expansive. Mm-hmm. So we, we talk about uh, education a lot and kind of what's the next generation going to take from, from us. And certainly we've had a lot of shows on classical music uh, or the, the larger set of that. And so I have a lot of students, uh, I teach at an arts high school and um, they're not all going to go into performance. In fact, probably very few of them will. And even when I teach at college, very few of those uh, students will be concert artists. Um, right. And so it's always a question of what are the other opportunities? You know, you can go into teaching, you can go into some sort of lecturing or a private studio or, um, mm-hmm. but certainly radio or uh, might Radio's be an option. Yeah. And what opened up after I graduated, because when I was still in Omaha as music director, I would um, I would have students apply for an internship so I could, you know, keep passing on what was passed on to me. And there's entrepreneurship degrees now to where you can go in and um, be a festival organizer. You can do it for these opera festivals. You can you can go out and do it in Coachella if, you, if that's your thing. Um, the great thing about, you know, being a jazz, if you were studying jazz and wanted to do education, then you have that whole other area of, um, teaching, uh, you know, studio recording, sound microphones, like that whole, like there's so much to it. I feel like there are so many ways. One, one of my, um, classmates in college was studying sound engineering, like how, yeah. You know, the acoustics and what goes into building a, a beautiful concert hall and his time spent studying classical guitar added to that, even though, you know, that wasn't going to be his thing. Right. Well, we had, yeah, Brett Leonard, a friend of my, actually my recording oh. engineer for some CDs. Do you know him? Yes. Yeah. I took one of his class, or I worked with him. He recorded oh. my senior recital, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's fabulous. Cool. I love oh. Brett. Yeah, so Where he, is he's he up at in, now? Is he in the Midwest still? Yeah, yeah, Indianapolis. Okay. And uh, right. he, yeah, he and his wife live there, and, and he's been on the show a couple times. Uh-huh. And uh, when he was a student in Montreal, he was a doctoral student. When I was a doctoral student, he was at McGill. I was at University of Montreal, and he was my recording engineer for uh, my last two albums that I released. And, uh, you know, he was he was a great musician himself, and I think it helped him a lot getting into that field um, because he just had the the mindset for it, you know, he knew what the musician was experiencing and going through. It made him a, a much better recording engineer as a result. So, yeah. like you say, that's another avenue. And and I think um, just becoming familiar with music and the mindset that comes with it and the training, you can go into so many related fields. And I don't think people think about those things. They they study an instrument and say, oh, I'm going to be a professional performer of this instrument. Yeah. Or, or they get nervous towards the end of their career, college career and say, Oh my gosh, I don't want to be a teacher. And I I remember telling my friend, I'm like, I mean, she was going to go on to get uh, her graduate and graduate degree and probably her doctorate. But I was like, you don't, you don't have to go in. You don't have to be a high school teacher if you don't want to. I mean, there was a lot of people that went into music therapy and, you know, you would need probably some additional education, but that was something kind of that stuck out to me as well. Um, being in teaching and, and, um, you know, in my free time, bringing my classical guitar to a senior retirement community, that was something I did throughout college. And I was like, gosh, that would be, I like saw, you know, people kind of moving to the music after being sedentary or, you know, just out of it for a while. So yeah, I mean, that's a whole other field you could get into that would be so fun and so interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's cool. Well, Mike, anything? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've got a lot. You go ahead. I've kind of... One of the... I love... I'm a a radio guy. I love radio. I love, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so much about radio um, Mm -hmm. and, and how 
radio has changed over, um, you know, over the centuries um, has been really fascinating. Um, you know, as, as TV came in, you know, you, you lost some of the kind of radio shows, the, the drama shows and, and those, those kind of skits that they, that they used to do. Yeah. Um, but you gained something, you gained something different and became more focused on music, became more focused on, on, you know, things that audio is really unique at, at doing. Um, mm -hmm. And now we're kind of coming into another time um, where we're having just seismic shift changes in, in media, um, specifically podcasts, um, specific, you know, TV even is, is just streaming in general. So yes. I'm curious, like your perspective on how radio is um, the relationship between radio and some of these new media that, that, that we're seeing happen um, over the course of the last, you know, five, 10 years. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's podcasting. Obviously it's so easy to pop in your AirPods and go for a walk or listen to anything you want to listen to is at your fingertips. But with radio, obviously we've been, you know, adding podcasts and um, at my previous job with with my podcast, I would kind of do this green screen thing and do a 60 second promo of promoting my podcast because on top of podcasting, people want to see video content. That was, that's something that's like, you know, now over the past couple of years with all of these apps, I feel like that's another element to it. But with radio and like the work that I've been doing is people love that it's part of the community. And it's still, especially during the pandemic, it was like still a comfort thing. You could yes. wake up and you could hear what was going on around you. And I even cherished it more because I was so isolated like everybody and or you know I didn't have a family or anything like that so I would wake up and it's kind of like you know you love hearing someone read you the weather and you love hearing this and some of it just has become a part of our I mean it's the oldest radio's been around for I don't know how long and I feel well, like over it's 100 still, years yeah, 100, yeah close, and, to, close to 150 I'll bet yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. And it, I just feel like, you know, a lot of people, um, I've been in public radio for almost 10 years now, and people thought I was kind of crazy for choosing that career path. And I was like, I don't think it's going to go away. I, I still think it's going to evolve. But we need to kind of get some of the classical um classical radio stations up with the times. We need that video content. We need to do remotes and invite, like you were saying, like have some of those live performances that 20th, you know, some of these new composers and, and local musicians come out and about and just kind of bring everyone together because I don't think podcasts can really do that. And I feel like that's what people yeah. still get from their local radio station. And oh, I, I think you're, I think you're right. And that's, I, like I said, I love radio. I love the adaptability of it. And one of the things for, for me, and I'll just speak personally for me, um, the, the things that will always be viable with TV and radio even more so um, is the fact that it is live. And I think a lot of people think of that as a disadvantage um, you know, because, oh, I could go and, and listen to anything at any time I go on YouTube and, you know, just type in whatever I want to listen to, mm -hmm. but it doesn't allow for the experience of, of, you know, all of a sudden hearing something different and new that you wouldn't have expected. Um, yeah. you know, I find, yeah. I find myself like loving to listen to sports radio, for example, because I know it's live. I know like whatever's going to happen is going to happen in that instant and nothing will nothing can take away from that moment that 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 thing happens, you know? Yes. Yes. And, and I, people love the fact that you're going to throw a piece out there and they don't know what it is yet. Or right. like you said, a little piece of information, a little tidbit, like people still look forward to that. It's exciting. It's fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned sports. And I think that's why live music, of course, we lament uh, declining audiences and things, but I think there will always be, if we can program right and if we can reach the right audiences, a desire for that live experience because you can't replicate it. You know, you can get a CD of a, a concert and or a performance, and often when I listen to a CD, my appreciation goes down 
Um, sometimes it goes up mm. because I hear new things that I didn't hear. But, you know, if there's one little mistake or one little thing that doesn't jive with me, then every time that comes up, I hear it again and I expect it and I just know it's coming. Whereas in a live performance, you don't know it's coming and everybody's on the edge of their seats, uh, whether it's a, a concert or a, you know, a baseball game or something. Well, yeah. maybe not baseball, but no, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I actually love live baseball. That was something I did in the Twin Cities just because it's like, it's the American pastime, but you kind of like, you wait for those big moments. Yeah. It does kind of keep you on the edge of your toe or edge of your seat. And I remember, are you familiar with the conductor, Andrew Graham's or Andrew Graham? He's kind of been, I'm not, he's no, kind of been making his way around, um, over the last five or six years, he has this like really bright eccentric personality. And he came to, as a guest conductor with Omaha symphony and he um, conducted the planet suite by Gustav Holst. And like, he was like so animated. And at one part in, I don't know if it was Mars. I can't remember. It was like at this really exciting part in the suite, he just turned around and said something to the audience. And it was just so funny. And no one expected that. And oh, it was just one that's... of the funnest performances, because if you think about like stories that you read about Mendelssohn and, and all of these encores and like, oh, play mm -hmm. the finale again. I was like, gosh, I, I really I was just so moved by that um, performance from that conductor because I was like, he's he's doing exactly what people need to be doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so nice. we we need that that communication. You know, we have to break down that fourth wall. Yeah, especially for those new listeners who I mean, I still get asked like, why do you, why do they need a conductor? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. What are they doing? Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Especially so, when like, you have things like the Orpheus that does so well without. Yes. Um, yeah. Exactly. So think, yeah. yeah, it's it's really fun, especially to like see that from because like you said live performances sitting up in the first few rows and being so close to the pianist or the violinist is like so thrilling. It's yeah. so magical. But when you get that from, you know, more performances from the conductor and it doesn't have to be quite as, you know, stiff, then it's like, yeah, yeah. that's. There's a YouTube can. blooper of a concert. I forgot if it's like Marion Alsop conducting or whom, but I think they're doing Firebird. Um, okay. And there's that, you know, I think it's fire, but where there's a, a very slow section and then there comes in with a bang, dun, 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 you know, uh, these two bangs and somebody was actually sleeping in the audience and just screamed. They got up and screamed. <laughs> you know, ah, it's such a surprise. And uh, everybody kind of laughed, but kept it going. And I'm sure the audience by from that time on was super attentive, you know, and yeah. you, you just can't get that in a recording. So, no, no, you can't. Oh, I love that. That's yeah. a great story. <laughs> oh, that's out. wonderful. Yeah, um, uh, Melissa, um, I, I was just going to ask what um, what kind of things that that you have planned coming up. What are some of the exciting things that you're um, that you, yeah that you have planned for you know KBOC or, or other side projects? What are you, what are you working on these days? Uh, yeah. So, uh, KBOC just launched classical next. So it's, um, I don't know if you've heard it on the radio. We've been talking about it quite a bit and it's celebrating the future of classical music here in the Valley and, um, teachers and parents nominate a student between the ages of seven and 13. And, um, we kind of, you know, we go through their, uh, nomination forms and their audition piece, and we choose one student to spotlight every month. So we read their bio throughout the day. Um, the winner for this month is 12 years old. He's at base of Sawatuki and he's just this, he's, yeah, he's amazing. So, um, he just came into the studio for his interview, which is now on our website. And it's another fun way. That's kind of like, this is what's great about radio. Like it's still exciting for a kid or actually the parents too, to come in and see the radio station. Like yeah. we forget because we're in studios all the time. But it's really such a good, inspiring experience for them. So I'm really excited about that. And um, I'm actually visiting his school next week to present his award and um, some gifts we have for him in front of his peers. And the main reason is because you do get, as you get older in high school, you, you go to competitions and stuff. But a lot of these younger kids putting in a ton of work outside of, you know, rehearsal 
they don't really get a ton of recognition. So Mm -hmm. if you start that younger and earlier, it'll have a good impact, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you so know, that's I have a nomination to put in eventually, but we'll talk later. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It, it's it's ongoing. So yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm doing that, and um, you know, a lot of classical music is based off of folk songs from you know different countries in Europe and America. Thinking of Aaron Copland, so I'm taking this lesson that I did with fifth graders, which is basically a songwriting lesson, and um, it includes like note values. So it includes all of these different aspects. It includes journaling and daydreaming and a whole history on folk music. And so then at the end, they kind of end up writing their own song lyrics in the style of um, this land is your land. So I kind of like break that up down and it's kind of like a whole week's worth of like a lesson. So I'm hoping to um, publish that and just kind of getting those ideas back down because I was like, like I said, I kind of, I like my creative job, but I always like to be working on a project. I do voiceover stuff in my free time. So um, that's another way I fill up my time. And yeah, yeah, just kind of creating this small education booklet on songwriting because I think it would really help students, A, get into music and or think about a career or studying an instrument. Um, well, we they... would lo- we would love to have you on to talk specifically about that because that I I, you know, I both Elise and I teach. I I I do songwrite. I love it. It's fun, and I would it would be just oh, cool. wonderful to to have you on. And you know, as as that gets closer to being completed. Yeah, I would love to. I I kind of need to like find some schools to go out and. Again, it's kind of like I've just kind of been thinking back like, okay, this was so successful when I was a student teacher and I need to do it again. And kids loved it. They wanted to take the project home and show their parents and like do the whole thing with their parents. And it's really hard to get um, fifth graders excited if you're doing kind of the same circle games and stuff like that. And I was like, how cool would it be if kids just learned how to how to write a song? Like mm-hmm. they don't really get that in school. And um, there's well, so many to come to our school. It's an arts <laughs> high school and they go to, down to fifth. It's fifth grade through 12th. Oh, and, OK. Uh, yeah, you're certainly welcome. I'll, I'll be... we'll be in contact. Yeah, I know the other teachers Definitely. would love to have you. Oh, great. Yeah. I mean, it would it would take up some school time, but um, that's fine. Cool. Yeah. I would yeah. love to come back and talk to you when I when I get more of that integrated. That'd be so sure. fun. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Fabulous. Fabulous. Um, Elias, do you, do you have anything else that you'd like to add before we kind of, oh, man, we can talk forever. Uh, <laughs> so I, true. I, I mentioned, you know, I love that you mentioned going into the studio being such an experience. Um, I've only been, I grew up in Albuquerque, but I was in the studio there pr- for a concert. I played in this really cool hall that was, um, owned by a granddaughter, wait, a granddaughter of Puccini. And oh, so the hall was designed for, for more voice, but I was playing uh, piano and, and it's kind of turned into a hall that does more pop and rock and other genre and jazz and other genres. But uh, the original design was more for opera and aria singing. But anyway, it, since I was the only con- uh, pianist to play a, a full piano recital in that hall, since it's, it was built in, I don't know, the early 20th century, I was on the radio and we talked about that and what kind of program are you going to play and whatnot. And it was such a fun experience in the studio. I, I loved it. Um, so ever since, and that was when I was 25 or 26, that I really caught the bug there and, and it bit me and I, mm-hmm. I just love the radio experience. I haven't done anything really since, uh, which is why I got into podcasting with Mike. Uh, I was so happy that he asked me to do this. And then I, you know, finally uh, connected with you and reached out and, it's just like this this idea, this dream that will eventually come to fruition of, of collaborating somehow. But uh, I think yeah. people need to see that and experience it to know how magical it is. Yeah, yeah. The whole experience is just, it's on another, le- on another level and mm-hmm. it inspires everyone that's a part of it. I'm always mm-hmm. inspired by bringing people in and hearing their stories. It's the funnest yeah. part of my job. Yeah, that's yeah. that's very nice. Good, great to hear, and and I'm so glad yeah. you got to come on, and we got to short sort of share in that experience as well. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was so nice talking and getting to know you guys. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure, it's been I'm sure we'll have more questions at some point, and when you also come back, 
we plan on having you back for your uh, other project. Um, yeah. Certainly we'll have more to, to discuss. Great. Yeah. I look yeah. forward to it. Absolutely. And so to hearing more of your music, I'll have to connect with you on social media. Um, yeah. So I can um, find out more about your guys's. So speaking uh, of suppose social media and, and where can people, uh, they obviously can listen to you mornings on KBOC. When can they hear you and how can they find you if they want more information on, on Melissa? Yeah. So um, weekday mornings on 89.5 KBOC from 5 to 10 a.m. And then um, I post a lot of my content. I post, um, you know, some of my uh you know, my personal life and my voiceover work on uh, Instagram. I try to stay on top of like Facebook, but I've kind of, I use it for work, but I'm just at Melissa Green underscore voices on Instagram. Okay. Uh, and then you can find, I feel like that's the easiest. Hopefully that's um, something your audience is a part of the Instagram world. But um, because, yes, you know, I, I think many. visuals and showing videos and sometimes it's just me showing people like this is what I do at my home studio or this is my view from the K-Box studios. I actually have a lot of listeners now in Phoenix following me there and chit chatting and they get to know a little bit more about me. So that's well, what I'm going to throw out there for now. Fun. All right. So that, that was at Melissa underscore green. Uh, Melissa Green underscore voices. There we go. Melissa Green with an E underscore yes. voices. All right. <laughs> Wonderful. We'll definitely will put those in the show notes as well. And again, thank this has been a blast. Really, thank you so much for, for your time. Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad that you guys invited me here. It was fun. It was. Well, Elias, thank you again for a for a successful podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is a lot of fun. I, I It's great. <laughs> I've been it's, it's always good when good, we can end with saying it was successful. It was good. It happened, yeah. and and we had a great guest, and and uh, so I hope everyone will check out Melissa Green and listen to her on KBOC in in, in the Phoenix area. And I love local radio, so yes, this is fabulous. Um, you've been listening to Mike Levitt, and well, you've really been listening to And If Love Remains, but you know, I'm just playing along You're for that. <laughs> I'm just I'm just driving the car sometimes. <laughs> All right. Hey, see you everyone later. <laughs>